to Sage at Twilight, a bi-weekly Ghost in the Magazine supplemental series where we explore the liminal spaces, the hauntingly familiar unrealities, the architecture of lively prose that is Rod Serling's original Twilight Zone series. I am Elle. And I'm Steph. And today we are going to take a look at episodes 17 through 20 of the first season of the show, which originally aired in 1960. This includes The Fever, The Last Flight, The Purple Testament, and Elegy. I will be discussing The Last Flight and Elegy with Steph, and then I'll go over the other two briefly. So The Last Flight revolves around a World War I lieutenant named William Decker, who lands in an American airbase in 1959, and it causes a bit of a stir. After a conversation with two officers, Major Wilson and General Harper, he realizes that the man he left in a doomed position in 1917, Old Leadbottom, Air Vice Marshal Alexander Mackay, somehow survived and became a hero in the subsequent Second World War. Decker takes this information to mean that he has to go back and sacrifice himself for the dude for Mackay to live on and save lives in his later war hero exploits. So he escapes to set things right, which Wilson and Harper verify once Mackay arrives. So what did you think about the time travel mechanism in this one, Steph? I didn't think it was that bad. (laughs) I understand that it was just a white cloud, which for some reason, they kept saying white cloud, like there weren't clouds in the 50s. But I know that to be false. Were there different colored clouds in the 50s? White, the unicorn of clouds in that area or something? I mean, maybe everybody actually wore rose-colored glasses and then they forgot they could take them off and that white was a thing. I'm not really sure. I didn't think this was that bad only because I always think about the Bermuda Triangle when I think about planes specifically and planes getting lost and reappearing or whatever and that place is creepy. I don't think they really pin down exactly what goes on there. So hey, white clouds and time travel, why not? I think the thing that bothers me about it is his absolute insistence that if I get back into my plane and fly up again, it's just going to happen again. Are you that sure that that mechanism works going back? You have some anomaly of your natural environment putting you forward or back in time. You don't just go back through. But that's if you have time to sit down and think about it as a theory. (laughs) This man's life was shook, okay? It um, It was up and down and all around. And he went through a lot of emotions in a short period of time. So I'm not so sure that he was so certain it was going to work as opposed to what else am I going to do? Maybe he just was like, this is it. Because what else was he going to do? Stay? Well, another thing I didn't understand is how did he know that Makai didn't just have a lucky maneuver out of the situation or somebody else came to his aid? I don't know what it's like to be in war. I don't know what it's like to fly a plane either. But I do know with horror movies, the reason why I get so scared sometimes about little nothing things is because I'm putting myself in this situation so I see where the mechanisms are there it was one of those places where the openness of the twilight zone you know write your own story around it gave it fatal flaws because I just didn't see time travel mechanism as being something reliable and I also didn't really see where he got the absolute belief thunderstruck into his head he didn't explain it there was no real reason like I don't remember what episode it was each of the airmen they came back from a stealth mission and then they started disappearing 
disappearing. And right before they disappeared, they had this panic attack and they would be like, I'm not supposed to be here. I don't, it just doesn't feel right. <laughs> a good mechanism, you know? Sure. But it was like a solo man's journey. I think most of it took place in his mind and in his memories. He was like blooping from one thought to the next pretty drastically. And the other two men are like, no, yes, no. They really just suspended the disbelief pretty quickly too for military men. Mm-hmm. If it was today, I feel like that toy plane he was flying would have gotten shot down before it even landed. But a thousand percent, they would have obliterated him like up oh, foreign flying object in our airspace shoot that shit down i have no idea maybe i'm missing context here but i would also think that they were in the middle of so many conflicts (laughs) yes i can't imagine if i'm at my job i work at a dispensary and the door opens and someone comes in with a bunch of weed from a different time and i'm (laughs) just like you're not in the dispensary uniform where's your manifest bro i can't accept that without a manifest and i don't even work for the military I need time traveling weed salesmen. This is something we need. Hey, if that's a job, sign me up. I don't care what the risks are. I'll deliver your weed to 2042. And I'm like, oh, wow, you don't have triangle cush anymore? That's wild. Here you go. Capitalism could hard fuck up time travel Mm -hmm. because then we start pulling endangered things from other times that have already become extinct. There's a fish that they thought went extinct or something like that. Mm -hmm. They were selling them for their swim bladders or whatever. And now they've rediscovered this fish and it's putting this other thing in jeopardy and I'm just like, why don't you go back to pretending the fish doesn't exist? (laughs) The other thing that kind of played with my mind as a modern viewer is the fact that 1917 and 1959 are 42 years apart and 1959 and 2021 are 62 years apart. Considering how weird his uniform and stuff was to them and then Mm -hmm. us trying to break down this piece of art from that period of time, like how foreign Mm -hmm. it all is. I mean... I like your number brain. So here's my just random things brain. The way that Mackay's last name is spelled doesn't look like it would be pronounced that way. It's spelled like Matt K and that they called him Leadbottom. And he's also embarrassed of it. Like really, are you that much of a prissy bitch? You survived getting shot in the ass. I would love to be called a Leadbottom, okay? That's a good story, especially if you're like a military man. That's something to brag about, Leadbottom. That's right. I got a bullet in there thick with three c's the next episode so in elegy we meet kirby weber and myers three astronauts from the 22nd century earth who have crash landed on a meteor millions of miles from earth and they find that their surroundings are suspended in time and that everyone that they encounter is unable to or does not interact with them until they encounter jeremy wickwire who identifies himself as the caretaker of the establishment a floating cemetery that allows rich people to live out their life's fantasy and death they accept a drink from him and continue the conversation only to find out the dude's a robot and they drink (laughs) some fancy embalming wine and oops looks like they're home after all what was the name of that embalming wine it was something really fucking cool i have it written down because it was one of the symbols i pulled out it's liebfromel i don't know how to say it but it's a sweet german wine the name translates like love frau is woman and milk it translates as beloved lady's milk and it's referencing (laughs) mother Mary. Mary is a symbolic figure. She's known for comforting 
suffering, for easing suffering, for mercy. So if they're trapped on this meteor millions of miles from Earth with a busted up ship and a bunch of dead folks, being dead is probably the most merciful thing that could happen to them. It's like the milk of mercy. I really enjoy that as a symbol. However, <laughs> beloved ladies' milk sounds really gross. <laughs> it does. Also, it fit more with that World War II European idea and it's like they said that this cemetery was built in the 70s or whatever that's not something i'd ever heard of before i had to look it up i just feel like it dated it in a weird way yeah (laughs) especially because they gave a very late year Mm -hmm. for them being alive on earth it was a late 22nd century another thing for the symbols is wick wire because he's a robotic intelligence but he's Mm. also there to keep vigil like a candle wick and wire gas in spanish one of them accidentally flipped it they said wirewick or whatever like they just didn't seem to give a shit about having that conversation or like actually learning anything from him they couldn't even remember his name his name is pretty easy i think that they were pretentious white astronaut men and that's why they got poisoned also like the pretension of this episode in general this is just seething with it the idea that that mid-century nuclear family crap was as good as it gets i mean i can see it on one hand because we're looking at 59 which they've come through wars, they've come through the Great Depression, and they probably felt pretty amazing kind of evening out. But they were still actively dehumanizing people based on gender, sexual orientation, and race at this period of time. If that was the pinnacle of Earth civilization before nuclear war, that's actually a pretty dim idea of what the future could be. I agree 100%. And I find it really hard to believe that no one's imagination could reach past that. This is it. Absolutely not. Y'all still got them little swoopy hairstyles. Like (laughs) he was saying that they're trying to find peace after death. You can't achieve that peace on earth. So why replicate basic bitch earth shit? The other thing is, all of this said, these guys' fantasy, these astronauts that lived in this hell world that was after the nuclear apocalypse and 200 years of building back from that, their greatest fantasy that they ended up living their eternity in was to go home. So for the 50s being so great, they took one look at it and they're like, eh, nah, (laughs) get out of here. Not for me. (laughs) There might have been some kind of thing in that symbolism of the only place that that can still exist is in that phase of like suspended animation and death because what we were probably actually looking at was probably more 30s 40s as far as Mm. the trucks and stuff yeah so I mean I could have watched this more than once and (laughs) dug into it but this week I was just tapped so absolutely I can say though that I really did like this episode and what I liked the most was that these dudes are sitting there freaking out and Mr. Wickwire is just like like, you don't have to freak out for much longer, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part of watching this episode, may I just say, was when they came upon the tractor and they're like, what's that? And I yelled, this is an American dad reference, my bad, tractor boy. And then Gabe from the other room through the wall yelled, got you in my tractor beam. <laughs> <laughs> these episodes not my favorites like overall in the twilight zone are close i think they're kind of like middle tier ones for me i thought these were really good i didn't struggle at all mm, so like and, and i was exhausted and i didn't <laughs> struggle at all i didn't have to take a nap they're very self-contained the questions that i had were more the mechanisms and not where does it go from here i guess i like the ones where it's more open-ended maybe that's why these ones just didn't do it for me that whole thing fits well with the twilight zone being mm-hmm. what it is like mm-hmm. 
you can just let your mind wander on what happened to them after like especially with these astronauts and i'm like i know that mr wickwire went to sleep after but who came after that that was those two and you can find the podcast on twitter at gitm podcast you can find me on twitter at nocturnical and you can find me on twitter at which egg pudding Okay, so the next episode to cover is The Fever. And The Fever revolves around a couple, Franklin and Flora Gibbs. And Flora has won a vacation to Vegas. And Franklin is a self-important dour little ghoul from middle America who is just hell-bent on making his every experience unpleasant and, you know, extending that unpleasantness to her. And if it wasn't for the name-farting slot machine that takes him down in this little tale, I'm sure he would find some other way to manifest some ungodly shit that would afflict him simply so he could bitch about it. Poor Flora. I can't imagine he would have been a good lay even as a young man and now in their golden years she has to listen to his sanctimonious shit to have her vacation and then he shits all over her every time she even attempts to have fun. I mean what's the fucking point? Divorce him. Dump him dude. And then when she says oh I'm not very lucky am I? It's like Bitch, your luck ran out the day you married that fucking goblin. But she seems ready for him to turn a corner at any second, and the way she looks at him is, like, almost heartbreaking. It's like eternal optimism, right? She's the star of the goddamn show here, but anyway... Once they have that uncomfortable interaction down there in the casino, he gets shouldered by good time Rick Moranis, who gives him one, I guess, I don't know if it's a quarter or a silver dollar, which he talks about later, but putting that into the machine and pulling the lever somehow curses him with this supernatural fever, right? And this voice that he's hearing that's able to entice him into gambling all his shit away, despite the big dick good angel on his right shoulder. Now... I'm going to have to digress a little bit and talk about why I cannot and will not take this episode seriously. It's not because it's a piss poor representation of an addiction people actually seem to suffer with, which sucks big time. And it's not because I can't stand this dusty old coot. Because I can't. It's because as a teenager, a friend of a friend told me the story about sneaking back into his mom's place after curfew. And she was pissed drunk. Anyway, he's trying to be quiet and was almost home free in his room when he hears this weird voice calling his name and it doesn't sound like it's mom but it's coming from her room so he goes to investigate to find out that she'd been passing gas in a way that sounded like his name and yeah there was probably drugs involved and he's not a reliable source but the slot machine saying Franklin is exactly how I expect it sounded honestly it sounds like the goddamn thing is shitting his name at him you know if I started hearing my name being called in a voice that sounded like the wrong end of some fucking indigestion, I'd probably get my ears checked first and then I'd see a fucking therapist. I certainly wouldn't decide that I was being, you know, haunted by a magical slot machine trying to get me to pump it full of my money. I wouldn't engage with it. I might leave the hotel. Uh, you know, alternatively, there's always exorcism. Anyway, so he does the thing he wasn't supposed to do because it keeps farting his name, and he keeps engaging with it, and then it eventually stalks him and bullies him out the window, as slot machines do. And then, as his wife and the cop are standing over him, we learn that this bitch's days-long gambling binge had not even been punctuated by sleep. So, seems like our boy Franklin Gibbs was an unreliable narrator as well. Just like the guy 
guy whose mom farted his name. Isn't that strange? Absolutely fucking spooky. Wild shit that can only happen in the Twilight Zone or shitty mid-Washington towns. <laughs> Okay, so the Purple Testament is the story of Lieutenant William Fitzgerald, who begins to see the glow of death on the faces of his colleagues. I'm going to preface this by acknowledging that this episode is full of a bunch of white male soldiers, and I kind of had a hard time to tell the characters apart, so I'm going to just do my best, alright? Fitzgerald, or Fitz as they call him, tries to share his morbid revelation with his buddy, who is Captain Phil Riker. I can't stop thinking of Will Riker from Star Trek TNG. Anyway, Riker thinks he's coming and glued under the pressure of war, which makes sense, but he's obstinate that everything's okay because as a commanding officer, that's kind of his job. But he's concerned and obviously believes him because eventually Fitz sees the glow on Riker's face and Riker responds by leaving his personal effects out so that they can easily be sent home. But he doesn't try to escape his fate. He goes out to die, which he does. Now, Fitz's erratic insomniac energy peaks when he sees the glow on himself in the mirror. And instead of doing something to change his fate, he just checks out and catches the ride to hell. Same as Riker. He sees it's going to happen and he's like, eh, what can I do with this? So the crux of the episode is that fatalism. The fatalism of war and how even a seemingly magical occurrence like Fitz's death glow sight is barely a blip on the radar. It's lost in the cogs of the larger war machine, the bigger crush of fate. Now, the episode foreshadows that idea as Fitz goes a little kooky in the hospital. He says some really interesting things here. When Riker is trying to placate him and calm him down, he bursts out with, well, how can you explain it? How can anyone explain it? As if he's asking about not just his gift but the whole damn war and what his gift is in the shadow of the war, right? And then when the injured soldier that he just seen the glow on dies, he snaps at the men that are going to examine the body and he says, there's nothing for you to look at but a body. He's dead. It's so very much, there's just no point in it. There's no reason for it. It is what it is. I cannot control it. I'm helpless. And that's the whole goddamn vibe of this whole episode, right? The individual against the larger currents of society and war or peace, the individual against time. It's useless. It's amped up in this military setting because any step outside of protocol is likely to end in a court-martial. And I've also heard things about subtle programming sometimes that's done with soldiers, especially these officers that are responsible for a larger group of people. Like, they don't want to freak out because it's going to cause pandemonium. And there's a scene in here where it teeters on that when Riker draws it back because he is in command. So, in the end, Fitz just has to simply shoulder that useless burden of knowing until he dies too, which he does. Now that fatalistic bend to the episode weaves through a lot of the Twilight Zone. And it seems to me, though, that the writers are kind of careful with this in this episode and some of the others. They use the flexibility of the unreality of the script and the setting to soften the hardness of that idea of fatalism. I do understand that we as people are authors of our own internal reality, and Fitz would be no different. But sometimes fate is some ridiculous idea that's been hardwired or brainwashed into us. My coward ass would have been running for the hills and trying my luck out there. And maybe I would have died anyway. Maybe Fitz would have died anyway out in the jungle, right? But regardless, 
Fitz's belief in the inevitability of his death or the honor position of a soldier or a lieutenant or whatever landed his ass in that seat and he rode willingly to his death. So with that, we'll close this episode. Until next time, maybe don't party with robots who offer you weird German wine or put your money into name farting slot machines. And hopefully we'll be talking again in a couple of weeks.